The Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 13. We're going to be finishing up what we started a couple of weeks ago by looking at verses 31 through 35 again this week. And we began to look at these verses a little bit more in depth, and we asked this overarching question of what does this show me about Christ? What is here in this passage that I, I need to believe and obey in following the Lord Jesus Christ? And as I've had some more time to study and meditate on this passage, I have to confess to you that I found uh, quite a bit more than I would initially found on the surface, because this passage really isn't so much about Herod. It's not a passage that just contains uh, another interaction with the Pharisees. But ultimately, this passage here is the full of the majesty of Jesus Christ on display. Now, this text should bring us great comfort and great hope because it displays to us the fact that there is absolutely nothing outside the control of the Lord Jesus Christ, even his death on the cross. Theologians have often identified Jesus as having fulfilled three crucial roles in his lifetime, that of prophet, priest, and of king. As a prophet, He gives instructions to us from God, speaking what the Father had commanded him to say and to speak the things that he wanted him to speak and to see into the future and declare the events that were going to happen and make them known to us. As a priest, he would die on the cross as a perfect, sinless sacrifice in our place, interceding on our behalf bearing our sins in his body, and will become our great high priest, just like we read just a moment ago. But he will be advocating and and mediating for us before the Father, even at this very day and at this very moment. And then as king, he will be given all authority on heaven and earth, and he will rule the nations as they are made a footstool for his feet. And he will reign and rule at the right hand of God the Father for all of eternity. In this particular passage that we have here, the role that we see Jesus taking on more clearly is that of a prophet. As he looks into the future at Jerusalem and he makes known to us how he will fulfill his role as priest. No threat was going to dissuade him, no deception was going to trick him, but he was on a mission to obey the Father and do what the Father's hand had purposed and predestined to occur in Jerusalem. And he reveals that to us here in this text. So, I want us to read these verses together again so that we have them before our hearts and our minds. And if you're there with me in Luke chapter 13, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 31. God's holy word says this. Well, just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go, t- go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. 
How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We just pray that you would write its truths upon our hearts. That we would not be just hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. Lord, give us the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to do that this day. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by asking you <coughs> excuse me, a question this morning. And the question is this. Would you live your life any differently today if you lived under the threat of persecution and even death because of your identification with Jesus Christ? Would you live your life any differently today if you lived under the constant threat of persecution and even death because of your identification with Jesus Christ? Now think about that for a moment. If by the providence of God, things in this country started to change for the worse in terms of the freedoms that we currently enjoy as Christians in this country, what would you do differently? Would you be maybe committed to pray more? You might pray more intently for your family, or your children, or your friends. Maybe you would endeavor to study God's Word more and, and, and memorize God's Word more. Would you cherish Christian fellowship more and hope to be able to encourage one another and be an encouragement to others? Would worldly pursuits concern you less? Would you spend your valuable time differently knowing that any moment at, at any time in the day, there might be a knock at the door with someone on the other side who absolutely hates Christians. You see, we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over this world that have indeed already answered that question for themselves. They live in the constant state and threat of persecution and tribulations that we can't even imagine. Christianity is illegal. Sharing the gospel is illegal. Gathering together as we have here today as a church to hold public worship services is illegal. And even just to give someone a Bible is punishable by law. But this is a question that we probably ought to be asking ourselves because there may come a time, and even in our lifetime, where our meetings here together may actually be seen as a terrorist activity, and the things that we say that come forth from this pulpit might be seen as hate speech, and thus it will be illegal for us to do so. Now, you might think that might be hard to imagine, but we saw this scenario start to unfold in Houston about two years ago when the mayor of that city sent a subpoena to a select group of pastors that she wanted and told them, hand over your sermons, we want to evaluate them. And yes, that happened here in this country, and she eventually withdrew that request, but this, ladies and gentlemen, is in a nation where freedom of speech and freedom of religion are supposed to be part of our core foundational principles. But would you live your life any differently 
if you lived under the threat of persecution and even death because of your identification with Christ? I think most of us here in this room would probably answer that question with a yes, and maybe some of us even shamefully so. You see, when we live in a country that we do, where we have such comfort and ease, the things of this world and even just plain idleness just overtake our pursuits of godliness and holiness. When we have all the luxuries and comforts around us, it is one of the greatest enemies to our souls in denying ourselves, taking up our crosses daily, and following after Jesus Christ. And if you add on top of that that you're young and you're seemingly healthy, one of the greatest challenges to you and even hindrances to yourself is to think that you've got plenty of time in your life to someday to just get around to pursuing God more completely and fully. Beloved, we must always take following Jesus Christ seriously. And we must never pretend that we have all the world's time to do so. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. There is always an uncertainty about the future because there is not one person here in this room that's in control of it. Even in our text back in Luke chapter 12 in the beginning of 13, Jesus was abundantly clear about that fact. But we also must not also think to ourselves that that somehow persecution in this country would be a bad thing. The early church was born under persecution in the book of Acts. And even today, the place where the church is growing at a rapid, fast pace is where persecution is ever-present in the nation of China. They're destroying churches, tearing them down, detaining people over there, and yet the gospel is going forth and Christ is building his church. You know, American Christians, we always talk about countries that are closed to the gospel. This country is closed to the gospel. That country is closed to the gospel. But in reality, there is no such thing as countries that are closed to the gospel if one is willing to do whatsoever it takes for the sake of the gospel, even laying down your life for the sake of Jesus Christ. The famed missionary to India, China, and Africa, C.T. Studd said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. What sacrifice can you make for Christ that will be greater than the sacrifice that he has made for you? What can you give to God that you will outgive what God has given to you in Christ Jesus? We are called to die to self and live for Christ. We are called to make known the infinite surpassing value of Jesus Christ and the threat of death for a believer in Christ for the sake of the gospel is not really a threat because we will live beyond this life. Jesus said in John 14, 9, Because I live, you will live also. Your life is not your own. You belong to God. 
And there is no cost too great. There's no, nothing too valuable that you can give. No effort that is too hard for you to undertake for the sake of making known the worth and the value and the treasure that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can you give up that is greater that he has given to you? The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, I think it's verse 21, It's my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ, Christ will now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. Would you live your life any differently today? If you lived under the constant threat of persecution and even death because of your identification with Christ Jesus. If you answer that question with a yes, why should you not be giving Christ your all now? What is holding you back? He gave his all for you. And we saw that as we began to look at this text a couple of weeks ago. We saw Jesus, he's absolutely determined to go to Jerusalem, knowing that this is where the place will be, that he will sacrifice himself and be crucified for your sins and mine. He is steadfastly resolute and devoted to securing your salvation by dying on the cross. And it started off with these Pharisees coming to Jesus and saying, that he needs to leave this area because Herod wants to kill you. This is Herod Antipas, the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. And so whether the Pharisees are really telling the truth or not, this is a carefully crafted tale. We don't know, but it's reasonable to believe based on the character of Herod. It'd be like someone telling us today that Congress just spent $10,000 to buy 20 hammers. Or something like that. It's certainly believable based on the track record of how they operate. But we can only assume that it's true because Herod wants to kill Jesus based on the reply that Jesus has for him. Now, it's not if these Pharisees actually have Jesus' well-being in mind here. We need to keep that in the back of our minds. But we must understand that all these parties here, they're in conflict with one another. The the Pharisees were opposed to Christ in his words. They hated him. And the more that he was liked by the people because of the things that he was doing, the more the Pharisees hated him and despised him because they were humiliated by his frequent confrontations. And so we saw Jesus reply to them in uh, verse 32, and he said, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. In other words, what Jesus is telling him here is, is go tell that snake in the grass. I've got work to do, and it's on my timetable. It's almost an ironic statement, what he's saying here, because what he's saying is essentially is this, is I'm not in the least bit intimidated by your death threats, Herod, because I must go to Jerusalem to die. You're not going to determine my destiny. I'm going to determine my destiny. He's not scared for one minute that Herod would be able to do anything that God would not allow to happen because he says, I must go to Jerusalem and die on purpose. But don't you love this language that Jesus has used here regarding the cross? He says, I must reach my goal. He calls it a goal. He knows where he's going. He knows what he must do. It's already laid out before him. His life and his death have been ordained by God. 
much like your life has. From your birth to your death, the psalmist says in 139.16, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's why we can say that no child is ever this cosmic accident, right? From the the couple that's having this baby all of a sudden in their later years when they were about to graduate their last kid or whatever, to the orphan, no child or person is ever an accident and certainly may be unplanned by us, but it is never, ever unplanned by God. But the word goal here, it means more than just a destination or a target that someone wants to to get to and obtain. But a more literal translation would be, I will be finished, or even to make perfect. To make perfect. Hebrews 5.9 uses it in the same way when it says, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. The cross is where Christ will be made perfect. And it's the same place that you and I need to come to be made perfect as well. But I want you to notice something else here really quick. And I want you to especially note the example that Jesus Christ gives us here and how we should live our lives. We should take note of this point. Is there not great freedom in knowing that absolutely no one can take away from you the things that matter? Do you see how much liberty there is here that you can actually have when you understand who you are and who you belong to and whose hands you are ultimately in? Listen, when you have placed all of your security and all of your interests into the hands of Almighty God and you've renounced everything that this world has to offer and you are determined to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ... That's when you found the ticket to absolute peace and freedom. You want to get rid of worry and anxiety in your life? Remind yourself whose hands you're in. Remind yourself that it is God's whose hands you are in, and nothing, no created thing, can separate you from His love. Remind yourself that your sovereign God is in control of your life and has all of your days laid out for you, and no one can take that away. This is certainly the attitude of Christ when he's met with this death threat. And he even continues on in verse 33 when he says, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, this is one of those places in the Bible where people who like to translate the Bible very literally in a very wooden fashion come into a bit of difficulty because verse 32 says, Today, tomorrow, the third day, I reach my goal. Here it says, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the next day. And if we say that's what it says and that's what it means, then we come into a conflict with reality because it's actually going to be longer than three days that all of this is going to take place. Now, that isn't to say that we don't translate and understand the Bible literally. But what we are saying is this, that we also have to understand a bit of language here. We have to do some hermeneutics, and that's a big fancy word for doing the art and science of interpretation. You do it all the time, you just don't realize it. But it's like when a brother or sister, they're playing and and it plays a prank on one another, and they're laughing, right? And they may say to each other or one another, I'm going to kill you. Well, it doesn't really mean that he's going to go or she's going to go kill the other person, that somebody's going to die. 
But it just means somebody's going to get a whooping later on, right? And it's going to hurt a little bit, right? But now this isn't to say that if you hear your kids actually say that and you hear rage in their voice or whatever, an aggression, you might want to go intervene. But you get the point, right? What this is, is Jesus is using this idiomatic phrase by saying today, tomorrow, and the next day, meaning that it's an indefinite period of time. It's, it's basically he's saying that this is all going to occur on my timetable. God's providential workings through his unsearchable wisdom and counsel will not be thwarted or altered. And then as a, a sad statement against Jerusalem, he says that it cannot be for a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. This is the city of David, the central place for the worship of the people of God. The home of God's holy temple is now known as a city that continually kills God's messengers. Now, if you were to search throughout the Old Testament and look up killed and prophet or read about anyone who says, thus says says the Lord, we would see that it is absolutely the case Time and time and time again. Zechariah was stoned in the temple in 2 Chronicles 24, 21. And Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 9, 26, But they came, became disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who had admonished them. But what an indictment against the Jews. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has actually referenced his death either here. We saw that in Luke 9, 22, when he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. But now, as we've we've had this progressive revelation coming about in terms of the, the death, burial, and resurrection, he's giving the disciples here a little bit more detail about where that will occur. And shockingly, it's going to occur in Jerusalem. And yet, we see in the beginning of verse 34 how this absolutely breaks the Lord's heart. Verse 34 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. And we see how deeply this breaks the Lord's heart by noticing a couple of things here. First of all is that little interjection there at the beginning of verse 34 where it says, Oh, oh, this is a, this is a word of strong emotion. There is an intensity here about what he's about to express and say. But the second thing that we see here is when he uses this repetition here in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You see how he says that twice. And we see that combination in Scripture when David, when he was overcome with grief over the, the death of his son, when he said in 2 Samuel 18, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We saw it when Jesus was frustrated with Martha in Luke ten forty one when he said, Martha, Martha, you have been worried and bothered by so many things. Jesus used it when he warned Peter, when he said in Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has determined or has demanded permission to sift you 
like wheat. And Jesus would use it when he confronted Saul as he was going on his way to Damascus to persecute some Christians. And he would say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so this is a way that that shows the, the emphasis and the depth and the intensity of the compassion of Jesus Christ towards Jerusalem here. This isn't like some heartfelt sentimentality, but this is holy compassion. It grieves Christ to think upon this city. It's as if to look at Jerusalem as being this pitiful, sad, helpless state, and he can't but say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Beloved, if we are to look upon Christ again as our example, we have to ask this question. Do we have such compassions in our hearts as Jesus Christ? If we are to be imitators of God, if Jesus Christ is our example of godly, sacrificial compassion and mercy, how are you doing today? Who do you know in your life that's helpless? Who do you know in your life that is in a pitiful state? Who do you know that's without hope? Who do you know in your life that's without Christ that you need to tell them the gospel and you need to live out that gospel before them? If Jesus would woefully and compassionately say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, whose name would you take and insert in place of Jerusalem's name that needs your compassion and mercy this day? Who would you put in there? Is there anyone that you can think of your life, in your life that needs this mercy and compassion from you? Write that name down right now so you don't forget it and leave this place and then go and forget. Let Christ be magnified through you by displaying a heart of compassion that Jesus Christ had for Jerusalem. Don't let this slip away. Who needs your compassion and mercy today? But Jesus Christ, he continues on, and he says, How often I wanted to gather you together, your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that I willed and you willed not. I desired and you desired not. The same word for want here is the same word for want in verse 31, when it says that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. It's thaleo in the Greek. It's meaning desire or wish. And so the fault that Jesus is clearly communicating here is that Jerusalem's own stubborn, hard heart is to blame. Their ruin and their loss is wholly upon their head. But notice how he uses this illustration of a, of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings. It's kind of funny, we had this goose around our pond for several weeks now, and she's been sitting on these eggs, and she just hatched them out a couple of days ago. And she's been sitting in the same spot for four or five weeks. We're wondering if she's ever going to hatch these goslings out. But she was up front the other day, in the grass, and you could see her wings sort of fluffed out and spread, and you saw this little gray head pop out, and you could see this baby gosling. But she just kept them under her wing from, uh, for security and for protection. And that's the same thing that Jesus Christ is offering to anyone who will come to him. For the believer, 
when you're afraid. We can pray as David prayed when Saul was chasing him in Psalm 51, or 57, verse 1. He said, Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes me by. When we're in danger, we can pray Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wing you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. When you're feeling sort of unwanted and unloved, you can recall Psalm 36, verse 7 to your mind. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. If you want to be with God for all of eternity, then you can pray Psalm 61, verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. When life's storms come your way, and believe me, beloved, they will come. Jesus Christ will be that only refuge for you that will endure that storm. To whom else will you fly? To what else will you grab hold of? Christ will be that shelter to you if you will let him. Nothing will keep you and sustain you like being under the shelter of the wings of God. But these people, they would not come. Just like today, people will not come. The Pharisees were around him all the time. They saw a lot of miracles. They asked him all sorts of questions, but they still never believed in him. And then lastly, in verse 35, he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When you think about everything that Israel has gone through, it's, it's amazing to think about what man started out with in the Garden of Eden and where they ended up. In 722 B.C., the northern tribes of Israel were destroyed by the Assyrians. In 586 B.C., the last remaining tribes were destroyed by the Babylonians. And yet here Jesus says that your house will be left to you desolate. And it would be in A.D. 70 that the Romans, the entire city, would be obliterated by them. In the Jewish historian uh, Josephus' works called Wars, it said that the, the Romans so desolated the entire city that the foundations were dug up and overturned so that you could hardly tell that there was even a city there. But the Romans left these few towers and, and fortifications as if it was a testimony to how great the city was, once was and how much power that they possessed and overthrowing it. And so whether this house here means the temple or whether it means the city, either way, it was fulfilled and laid desolate and came to pass. But here he talks of his return. When he says, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a great day coming. It's fixed. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But on that great day, 
Everyone will know that Jesus Christ is Savior, including all the people who have rejected him. Every eye will see, every knee will bow before him, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father. But before that day comes, you must resolve this great great question for your life. And that question is this, is Christ all to you? Does Jesus Christ reign upon the throne of your heart? Would Jesus Christ come and lament over you because of the hardness of your heart? Would He say, oh, whoever and whoever is, are you the one that I am talking about and mourning over and lamenting because of the hardness of your heart? Or will you enter into the joy of your Master when He returns? This text is not just about Herod or the Pharisees, but this is about the glorious risen Christ coming back again. The glorious risen Christ going to the cross and dying for you and for me out of the overflow of the love for for you and to the glory of God the Father. Is Christ all to you today? Do you need persecution to follow Him more fully? Is there steps that you need to take today to be obedient to Him? Is Christ all to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to walk in His ways. Give us all heart of compassion. Help us not just to take what we hear here today and walk away unchanged. But Lord, help us to be conformed into the image of Your Son. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.